Hi again, everybody. Welcome to Radio MVP Sports Podcast, episode number 141 of the Sports Podcast. And today we have a special presentation of the Sports Podcast as we have two great guests coming your way. The return of James Donson and Gemma Bastiani. Of course, James, my high school basketball partner in play-by-play action covering the Newcastle Red Hurricane. And Gemma Bastiani, who uh, runs a podcast service through Play On Radio, her new podcast or her new rebranded podcast, I should say, is called Footy Actually with Rana Hussein. And you can check that out. And of course, she does all the information you ever want on Australian rules football. So stay tuned for that. Uh, You can follow Gemma online on Twitter at GL Bastiani and Play On Radio Melb. And there's also her Australian Jams outlet where she talks about uh, music from Australia. So you want to check that out at AustralianJams.com and on her Twitter at Australian Jams. And Gemma Bastiani has her own has her own website, and that is GemmaBastiani.com. All right, let's get started. Let's bring in my partner from high school basketball and our Indy 500 expert to recap what happened over Memorial Day weekend in Indianapolis. This is my conversation earlier today with James Dotson. It is a great opportunity to bring back our good friend James Dotson, who, just like he does each and every year, heads out to Indianapolis to take part in the Indianapolis 500. And man, do you have a story to tell us? Not only were you at the largest gathering sports gathering or attendance in the world right now which is phenomenal which is one of the highest all the time anyways but what was it like to be with 135,000 other fans for Indianapolis 500 this year Uh, I'll tell you what Tim like so you have when you've gone as long as my family has this was our 46th year in a row attending the 500 you have everything mapped down to a science of when you have to leave the hotel, when you need to be getting to your parking spot, when you need to start walking from your parking spot to the track itself. And even though we knew traffic was going to be lighter, there was obviously going to be only 40% uh, attendance. We still stuck to our normal time and man, did it feel creepy as you're driving and you're not getting in the traffic jam nearly as early as you used to. You're walking to the track and there's nobody else around. It, it was really, really weird at that point. But then you, you, we get up to our stands and yeah, it's, everybody's spaced out. You know, there's not a lot of people there. By the time it was race time, it felt like n- normal. It felt like there weren't 135,000, but 300,000 in those bleachers. And there wasn't. But that's just the way it felt, I think, because we're so used to, you know, you're 10 feet away from me at all times. Uh, So that was just really, really different. And when you looked at it on TV, uh, I'm sure it looked the same, that it looked like every seat was filled. It wasn't. There were two seats at the end of every single group that were left open. But if you think about it, if you have seats one through four with your group, five and six are open. Well, guess what? You're going to spread out a little bit. Your four guys are going to go one through five and seats seven, eight, nine, ten are going to scoot down a little bit into seat six. So it was, you know, it wasn't, you know, the, the jam packed, you know, sardines, but when you looked at it, it didn't look like there were empty seats there. I promise you there were, but it, it was, that was a crazy enough experience right there, but it was just incredible. Every single part of it was, uh, it, it felt started to feel like normal again. Yeah. And you got to see history in the making as uh, Helio Castanevis comes away with his fourth Indy 500. 
and Michael Shank. We talked about them the last time you were on, being a small team, having a chance to win the uh, Indy 500. And sure enough, it came to fruition. Uh, there's one photo more than anything that was, I think, so telling of how big this was for Meyer Shank Racing. Uh, it, it was one of, one of the co-owners, Michael Shank, uh, on the pit wall, basically ready to jump over the wall in celebration as uh, Elio was going by on that last lap. Um, that win, uh, I mean, obviously it's big for Elio. Only four guys, he's now the fourth, have won four Indy 500s. I mean, that is uncharted waters, to say the very least. Um, it, it, he's uh, 12 years. That's the second longest gap, I believe, all time between uh, consecutive wins for a driver in Indy history. Um, uh, third oldest driver ever to win. So, I mean, so many accolades for him and well-deserved. But when you look at uh, a team like Michael Shank or like Meyer Shank Racing, who four years ago, this team did not exist in IndyCar. They came over for the 500 and for the Grand Prix four years ago. Then they built it from two races in the year to four races and then to eight races and then finally got it to a full season schedule. And uh, to be able to get then a second car uh, in the show this year uh, with that team, uh, and to be able to go and, and do what they did, to, with, again, with, with a very, very low-budget team, absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible what, uh, what they did. And uh, the fans are very re- uh, recognizing of how important this was, obviously for Elio, but uh, even more so, I think, too, for, uh, for a small-budget team like Meyer Shank Racing. Uh, you know, we talked about that the last time you were on, just how important just making the 500 is for those – for those teams, let alone a uh, top 10 finish or top five finish. And lo and behold, uh, you know, a victory. And there was a scenario there that we didn't really talk about is how, uh, you know, a veteran like Castro Navis was available to uh, partake and be part of this, this small team. Uh, You know, I was reading some of the people that came up and congratulated some of his uh, compatriots went on to talk about this is they didn't even realize 06 was him. At times. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I think part of it, too, I mean, it was, I think, three years ago now that he stepped away from IndyCar full time. He was still doing the 500 with Team Penske. But then, you know, that also dropped away that he was no longer doing uh, even the 500 at that point uh, with Team Penske. Another team picks him up last year uh, in, uh, in Arrow Schmidt Peterson. And then this year with uh, with Meyer Shank Racing and, you know, something with that kind of experience that just is huge even in just you know setting up a race car um getting that second car uh, on a team makes huge dividends uh in general too to be able to go back and forth between driver one and driver two uh is a big part of it so um someone with his experience especially just you you can't put a value on that and the fact that he can go and, and pull off uh get, getting that history that he's been waiting so long i mean think about it just since 2009 he's finished in second place two times in between that where he was just so close and just couldn't quite pull it off. Um, I, again, I, I think knowing that, I, I go back to uh, Daytona 500 when uh, Dale Earnhardt finally won the Daytona 500. Everybody on pit lane is lining pit road, waiting to congratulate him. It was that same way with Elio. Uh, you heard the drivers uh, in, in their conversations afterwards, especially his good friend Tony Kanon. Um, the uh, post race comes across, and you hear uh, they. Uh, are radioing with Kanan and they say, if you finished 10th, Tony, who won the race? And they say, Castro Neves. And his response is priced. No way. Yeah. They, they all know it. They know how big it was. And especially for a, a good friend like that, I think that just means even more. Another story that we were talking about, uh, James, you know, prior to the race was uh, 
the uh, the team for a carpenter and ed carpenter uh his uh finish goes into the top five so that was pretty impressive yeah carpenters uh i mean he, he started fourth i think they would have liked a little bit better but i think you got to look at what the other guys were doing the, the fact of the matter is you had renus vk and uh, connor daly who were leading for a majority of that race and it, it was crazy how the the pit strategy worked out this year a lot of different uh you know, in terms of the fuel strategy, you had some cars who could only go 31 uh, laps at the most, if even that. Um, if you were out in front, you were wasting so much more fuel. You had guys like uh, Takuma Sato and Scott Dixon who were going 39, 40 laps. And uh, honestly, too, I think Connor Daly finishes a lot better uh, than where he did. He finishes 13th in the end. He's had a little bit of bad luck. The uh, wheel coming off of uh, Ray Hall's car coming out of the pits and uh, it's wrong place, wrong time. It ends up... Uh, hitting Daly's car right on the nose and there was nothing he could do. Couldn't dodge it. Uh, his car was okay. I mean, he, uh, he was able to race the rest of the way, but it definitely did not have the, the same speed and same aerodynamics the rest of the way. And that was just a little bit of bad luck, but you know, Daly and, and uh, VK both led laps for the first time in their uh, Indy 500 careers. And, and again, that just shows what that team can do when they, uh, what, when they're at the top of their game. And it, it's a shame for both of them, but, uh, at the same time for, uh, for Ed, I don't know if he led any laps in the race, uh, in the end, but he was always up at the front. You'd love to see him uh, as one of those old timers get a, a race win. I'm sure he's sick and tired of these top five finishes too, but, uh, that, that team performed in- incredibly well yet again, uh, for a low budget team. They always get it done in Indy. So what was some of your, your takeaway from just the event itself, the, the race and, uh, you know, just your normal routine and what you went through this past year. Obviously, last year, not able to attend it. This year, able to come back and do it. Just your overall view about, you know, your experience this past uh, Indy 500. All I can say, Tim, is, you know, everybody, when when they talk about when, when you've gone to the 500, whether it's once, whether it's 50 times, it all begins with everything during the pre-race ceremony and just how special that pre-race ceremony is. Everybody has some part of it that they love. And I, I'll tell you what, no joke, uh, there were tears being shed in, in the stands during taps, during back home again in Indiana, during the national anthem, during the flyby. And it was just more than anything, the fact that, oh my, we're finally back. We're, we're finally getting back to this normalcy. And, and Indy 500 fans are the most dedicated fans that you will ever see. Um, I mean, that there, there's a guy who sits two rows ahead of us, Scott, who we see every year. He's gone for 30 plus years. We've gone for 45 plus years. And when we sat down in our seats, we, and uh, he ends up coming up a few minutes later after us. And it's like, Hey, I, we missed you. We missed you all, all this. You know, it is, we legit have missed being able to do our annual routine. And it is, it was so much fun to be able to do that. And then to be able to celebrate with the fans and those last 10, 15 laps, Tim, this could not have happened in a better year where everybody's so excited to be back to begin with. If you're a, if you're just a casual race fan, you probably say that was a boring race. It was only two cautions. It was the fastest race ever because of it. So to a casual fan, that was a boring race to anybody who is a, a bigger race fan though, knowing all these fuel strategies that are going on, can uh, Sato or Dixon go 40 plus laps on one load of fuel. That'd be incredible. They don't bring pretty darn close to stealing the race. Kind of like Rossi did five years ago. They almost did it, but then you got Elio Castaneda's going against uh, a, a young driver and Alex Pelot going back and forth. And I, I kid you not, Pelot takes the lead. You were hearing groans in the crowd, not because we hate <laughs> Alex Pelot, but because everybody loves Elio Castaneda's and wanted to see that history. Every time Elio had the run 
and gotten to the lead, you, you would have thought that your favorite team just won the Super Bowl for the fifth straight time. Like it was that much excitement and fun. And, and just to prove it more than anything. So again, those who aren't race fans, uh, Elio Castroneves, his, uh, his celebration, I guess the best way to put it, his, uh, his tradition has been right from the very uh, beginning of his racing career is he dedicates to the fans by uh, stopping his car on the track and going and climbing the fence. Spider-Man has been his nickname since the very beginning as a result. Well, you know, he does it. He wins the race. He stops at the start finish line. He goes to climb the fence and there's probably two dozen people on the other side of the fence climbing it with him. Fans in the stands who are climbing the fence in, in salute of what Elio just did. He goes on his victory lap. There are people lining the fence the entire way around the two and a half mile over. That was something that just was indescribable, really. Like to, to be able to see the fans give it back to Elio, just like he's been giving it uh, the support for, for the fans and doing everything for the fans for the last 21 years uh, in IndyCar racing. That, that was a really, really special moment. And in all honesty, you got to think of it this way too. Security guards are posted all around the two and a half miles. The yellow shirts are everywhere, making sure that everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. They didn't care either. They were right up there celebrating with all the fans because they knew how important this was. They would casually look the other way when they saw people wanting to go and climb the fence and, and, say, and say hello and congratulate Elio for what he did. That just, again, speaks volumes to how important this event is to the world, especially to everybody in the Indianapolis area, but to everybody in the world. And everybody was so glad to be back, and there's not a better way that you could have capped it than by a fan favorite getting his record-tying fourth win and being able to go and salute it with him. That was just so much fun. It, it certainly was. Now... Looking to the future, obviously he'll be defending his championship next year. I can't imagine him changing manufacturers or changing uh, teams, especially uh, a small team, which just means so much to them and to him and getting that fourth opportunity. Is history about to be happen in the next year or two where, where Julio's got a chance to, uh, to bring home number five? I mean, so when A.J. Foyt won his – uh, fourth back in uh, 1977 you know the buttons came out immediately it was a uh, uh, five for Foyt five for Foyt they wanted it he had what he went until 91 so he had 15 yeah. tries at it and couldn't do it uh, Elio's obviously much older at 46 he's only got a couple of years at best uh, Cinco for Elio does have a nice ring to it I I'd love to see it um, I I'm going to be skeptical and say I mean with how competitive this Indy 500 field is and the whole IndyCar series is Anybody can win on every given day. I mean, no, no, I mean, look at it. The fact that you yeah. had what 23 finished on the lead lap and it probably could have been a lot more A few lost a, a lap just because of trying to stretch the, the final fuel run. Uh, Rosenquist, for example, uh, was leaning late until he had the pit with about five laps left because he was trying to go 40 plus laps. So um, the most competitive field in history, that's not going to change. Will Elio's team change? I would say no. The only caveat would be if, a team out there offering him a full-time ride for the entire series again, um, which is very possible and would not surprise me. I mean, all the uh, sponsorships you can end up pulling in on a, a guy like Elio, uh, especially after winning that fourth Indy 500, somebody might give him a full-time ride if he wants it for an entire season. Um, that'd be the only way that he is not uh, in that pink and black uh, car for next year. Uh, by the way, first time a pink car has won since 55, I think it was. So it has wow. happened before. We have seen a pink car out there. 
Uh, you've never seen a car number with the zero in front uh, win before, though. I will, I will put that one yeah. uh, out there as a little bit of a cool little factoid. But Elio will be back. I'll, I'll give him two more years that he'll probably try for it. N- knowing him, though. Anything's possible. I mean, he's 46. With how fit these guys are, they can be driving into their 50s. And I know that sounds crazy. It's not crazy. You saw Gordon Johncock, AJ, uh, AJ Foyt. Um, right. Bobby Unser for sure. They all race well into their uh, into their uh, late forties, early fifties. If he wants to, and a team wants to, they'll keep giving Elio a chance at it. And you, you know what, the fans are going to love to see that every chance that they can get to. They love to see him get that fifth one. Um, will it ever happen? Odds are very much against him, but man, that's going to be fun to watch. It's, it's going to be a storyline uh, coming into twenty two and. It's just going to be a fun year just to knowing uh, that they had that major opportunity and they succeeded. And it'll be interesting to see how the point race goes out for India uh, style racing uh, the rest of the year. Yeah, it will be. I mean, he's still got his uh, full-time ride in, in the uh, sports car series where he's already done some impressive stuff. Uh, I believe he, uh, yeah, I think his team won the, uh, the Rolex uh, at Daytona uh, to begin the year. So, you know, he's going to be strong. Um, I mean, I look at the rest of the IndyCar season, though, because he's not a part of it uh, for the full season. But you look at the championship, Alex Blow shot up to, in the second place, um, Scott Dixon. So early on, the crash at the wrong time throws Scott Dixon and Alexander Rossi into complete turmoil. They're sent to the back of the field because they literally run out of fuel under caution. They couldn't get the car restarted because the fuel lines literally ran dry. But here's the difference. Rossi couldn't quite get anything figured out. Dixon with the fuel strategy did exactly the right thing to stay out there as long as he could ends up on the lead lap ends up almost uh, at one point near the front of the field with a chance to win it down the stretch after being a lap behind for over half of the race. And because of that, getting up in the 17th place in the end doesn't look like much, but that's what wins you what would be a record seventh IndyCar championship. Uh, when, when he does win it, I'll, I'll mark that down right now. I think Scott Dixon wins that championship yet again, you go back to this moment. 17th place doesn't look like much of anything at the Indy 500, but the fact that he was able to squeak out a 17th and not be down in 29th or 3rd is what saves uh, his championship right here. But all in all, again, just shows the the fact that with all these young guns that are doing great things, the Alex Pelos, uh, Pato Award finishing fourth, Sage Karam going from the last row and finishing seventh with, again, a, a very low-budget team, um, Dry and Reinbold Racing. They'll be able to do another race this year because of that finish. Uh, those kind of guys, we mentioned VK, the fact that you have those young guns battling with the uh, the old farts, so to speak, but the old farts uh, got the last laugh with Elio's win just shows how great this series is. The young guys against the old guys, and uh, it's a battle each and every week. It's always a, always a fun time to watch. Well, this old guy wishes you, the young guy, the best. Thank you, my friend, for coming on. I can't wait to uh, talk to you uh, soon. And uh, congratulations on everything going on with your family. And I cannot wait to uh, to meet August uh, personally. Uh, I appreciate that. He's uh, he's excited to meet uh, everybody as well to get out there. And uh, I don't know if next year we'll, we'll take him out to Indianapolis next year. I don't know if we'll go to the race yet. We'll probably give him another year. But he's uh, he, he's already enjoying watching the uh, the cars at two months old, just sitting in front of the iPad watching him with daddy. So uh, we, we got a young race fan ahead of us. Don't you worry. All right, that's James and August Dawson with us here today. Thank you, James, once again for coming on the podcast and reviewing uh, the Indy 500 with us. And I look forward to talking to you very soon about other 
upcoming events that you and I will be talking about very shortly. Plenty coming up, and that's uh, we're going to enjoy some summer first, but uh, I'm already looking forward to football season, my man. Yeah, you and I both. Take care, my friend. Thank you. You too. My thanks again goes out to James Dotson for appearing on the podcast here today, recapping the Indy 500 for Memorial Day weekend, and also allowing August Dotson to make his debut here on the podcast this week. So um, congratulations to the Dotson family, and there's no question about that. And you can follow James on Twitter at 3SN dot. That again is at 3SN dot. And, of course, you know James from our high school basketball season. And uh, we'll talk more about what's coming up here in the future real soon with James. But let's talk a little football now. And this time we're going to do it the Australian version with Gemma Bastiani. Of course, you can follow Gemma on Twitter at GLBastiani. And you can follow her Play On Radio Network, uh, a podcast network called Play On Radio Melb on Twitter. And if you're into any type of great music, then you want to check out her podcast. that should be coming back soon. It's called Australian Jams. As you can find that on the internet at australianjams.com and on Twitter at Australian Jams. All right. With all that in mind, we had an opportunity to finally get Gemma back on the podcast and talk about the women's competition and the men's competition that's going on currently. And uh, I hope you really enjoy this conversation with Gemma. One of our favorites here on Radio MVP. As promised, as I always say, as promised, our guest has returned. It's Gemma Bastiani uh, from Melbourne, Australia. Obviously, our footy expert, as we have had her on uh, multiple times, talking both about the men's and the women's uh, competition down in Australia and how much I love footy and how much I've actually been talking a lot about it up here. Uh, Gemma, I've uh, reached out to uh, one of your podcast uh, co-hosts. I got another one to reach out to yet still. And I've also uh, talked to a couple people here in the States. One was actually a footy coach, a head, head coach or manager, you may call it. And the other was uh, Brian Barnish from the USAFL, who uh, is kind of their, their media consultant. Yeah, Um yeah, he does a lot of work over there. And Julia Montesano, obviously, um, she's a champion. She works for the NBL here in Australia as well. So she knows a lot about a lot of sport. Yeah, uh, she was fantastic. And uh, what, a, what, a, what a trooper because she, uh, she made time in her busy schedule uh, to uh, come on this podcast. And uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun meeting her and talking to her about that. So, of course, we're talking to Gemma. Uh, you can follow Gemma online at GL Bastiani on Twitter and follow her also through Play On Radio Melb and her Australian Jams podcast, which is uh, at Australian Jams. Uh, so a lot to talk to about. And there's still more, I'm sure. But Gemma, let's, I wanted to get right off to the bat and talk a little AFLW with you. This, uh, this past season, just give me a recap of what, you, what happened in, in Brisbane winning the, uh, the title, uh, winning the flag. Uh, was that a shock to you? Was that uh, not a shock? Because I was kind of surprised they were able to go into uh, the crow's nest and, and win the game. No, I don't know that it was necessarily a shock. I think um, we have a terrible habit here in Australia of underestimating teams that aren't based in Victoria. 
um, and in particularly underestimating teams that are in Queensland because a lot of people simply don't understand the talent that is on those lists. Um, Brisbane being the obvious one, they were decimated uh, for a couple of years to expansion and have really cleverly rebuilt that list, spent last year kind of preparing it. So getting the game plan right where it wasn't always going to be effective, they weren't always going to win, but they were clicking as a team. So then this year they could just take it to the next level. And that's what we saw. And the thing about Brisbane that I really loved this year and that really stood out above a lot of other clubs was the the work rate and the one percenters that everyone on the ground was willing to put in, whether it was the star key forward in Dakota Davidson or it was the dour defender in Shannon Campbell. Every single one of them is looking at, at how they can influence the play whether they do or don't have the ball. And that ultimately was what got them over the line. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a fun game to watch. They really dominated from the onset and really never let up. And uh, I kept thought, personally thought uh, Adelaide would make a kind of a run in one of the, the quarters, maybe in a second or a third, and never did. And it was the pressure that I thought uh, Brisbane was able to do throughout the game. And... Uh, really uh, defensively, just really pushing away uh, them from their their best players, or even pushing them away from the uh, from the inside the fifties, and really making them work for everything they they did get. I, I think I'm correct in saying that Brisbane conceded the most inside fifties of an AFLW match ever, and conceded I think it was just two goals or three goals. Yeah, um, they that defensive group has really been the the steadiest part of the ground for Brisbane since that first season. But we, when you look at the additions this year in Natalie Greider, who has been there for two years, but has absolutely excelled this year. And then Indy Tahu, who came in halfway through the year and just was a really solid one-on-one key defender, given the fact that they didn't have shiny web in the side. I think that defensive group really deserved that you probably could have cut the best on ground medal into six or into five and handed it one to each of them. The AFLW uh, made a big announcement uh, a couple of weeks back, I guess now that they are going to start the, the season earlier in December, uh, extend it one week and look to expand to all 18 clubs here in the next uh, two seasons. Just let me get your initial reaction to what they announced and, and how it's going to go forward. So there were two, yeah, two parts of the announcement. The first part being the expansion. I think the expansion announcement was uh, exactly what we needed. It wasn't immediate because we, we couldn't handle immediately having four new clubs, particularly in New South Wales. I think Victorian and South Australia probably could have worked it out, but in New South Wales, I, they could not have fielded um, a second team, uh, as much as I desperately want my Swans to have a side. Um, but having a, an end date that clubs can prepare for, that the competition can prepare for, um, is really important because now they can actually ramp up their um, preparations and, and marketing strategies as well, getting people on board, getting the right people on board, sourcing the right coaches and things like that. So I think the, the expansion announcement was perfect. The movement of the season, I'm less of a fan um, purely because here in Australia in December, it's cricket season. 
So they use the same grounds around community grounds as the footy clubs do. So access to stadiums, um, access to a lot of grounds that are used in the AFLW will, will now no longer be possible. So um, there'll be no Marvel games, um, game, Marvel Stadium games, sorry. Uh, there'll be no Cadinia Park games down in Geelong. So I assume Geelong are going to have to find a new home ground for their AFLW team. Um, there, there are all these things that come into access to grounds. And then we consider what other sports are now going to be overlapping uh, with the AFLW directly. Um, so the basketball, the WNBL will be overlapping directly. The W League will. And to some extent, the uh, Big Bash, the WBBL will. So we have players that play in all three of those sports professionally in Australia uh, that now have to make a choice between which sport they want to play. And as much as we'd love to see them choose footy, a lot of them are going to choose their other sports. And, and the ones that come to, sorry, come to mind immediately are Monique Conti, um, who is a star of the competition, who plays basketball, and Tessa Levy, who came in this year, um, started to have an impact, but then had to go to her Olympic training. So are they going to choose basketball or football? We don't know yet. Um, and then Jody Hicks, uh, who plays for the Giants. She's a cricketer. Um, how is she going to balance the two? We've already seen Jenna McCormick and Ellie Brush quit footy to pursue their soccer, round ball football mm -hmm. um, careers. And it's only going to exacerbate that problem. So I think there are a few factors. And then just the added layer of the fact that the players weren't consulted about this. The players found out about this when we found out about it. So, you know, they've had their year plan, they've had their holidays planned, all that sort of stuff. And now all of a sudden their preseason training is going to start in September and that completely throws out their year. Oh my, yeah. That's uh lack of foresight completely. Uh, <laughs> I mean, not to consult the players at all. I mean, they're the ones who are going to be on the grounds playing. And like you said, has to uh, make adjustments to their to their work lives and uh, their whole life because yeah. it's over a holiday period. It's over Christmas and New Year now. So, right. you know, they will get a week off over that time, but usually people are planning holidays then. Usually people are seeing their families then. And now to a few months out, be told, oh no, you actually need to be in peak physical condition, be training and be playing over this time. That really, like, it seems like such a minor thing. Pull the season back two months, make it completely separate from the men's. But the timing of it, if it was October to December, it'd be a different story. But the fact that it's over that period um, really does throw it up. And the fact that it's happening this year, it's not even waiting a year for that to happen. Um, and then the, there's an extra added layer of state league competitions. How do state league competitions work now that they're no longer going to be aligned with the AFLW? There's a lot to consider with this. Yeah, it's when I heard it, I didn't quite... I mean, I see and I says, this may not work as well as they said. And then I th remember how you have been such a proponent of a full season. And the idea, I said, when I first heard they're moving it back, I says, well, there you go. They're going to have the full season because they're going to have the weeks available. And then they said, no, we're adding one week. And it's and I'm thinking, all right, now you have potentially in two to three years, 18 sides playing and only 10 games. That's going to be difficult to figure out you know, to judge a team on, on how to make the finals and who, and really 
you know, there's going to be eight teams that never played each other, and some of them may make the final, some of them may not. The the plan um, is to continue to elongate the season, but that comes up with the other idea is um, that they just want the end date of the AFLW season, the grand finals, to be mid-March before the Blues, uh, before the Blues, sorry, I just read the word Blues, before the... Uh, men's season begins so that's the end date so if they continue to add weeks to the season that means the season is going to be starting earlier and earlier each year wow do you get what i mean yeah so as they add teams and as they add weeks and we finally get a full season that we've been wanting when's it going to be starting it's probably going to be starting october yeah by the by the end result so that's the thing it's not it, it feels um, reasonably short-sighted in this decision-making process. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that the AFLW have never had, or the AFL for the AFLW have never had um, a long-term plan for the competition. It's always been what's happening in the immediate future. And they've made a lot of decisions on the fly. And because of that, they've, they've kind of dug themselves into a hole and then have to keep digging to try and fix the things that they now could have if if there had been a long term plan, wouldn't have been implemented in the first place. Yeah, and it sounds like they for one of the first things they need to do is is to get a group of of, of players to form a committee that that they could consult with as they make these decisions. For at least the players, then can report back to their sides and say, "Hey, this is what they're thinking about doing," and know what's going on ahead of time. Instead of like you mentioned, everyone finds out at a news conference. Yeah, and that's the thing. Just when the GWS Giants and the Gold Coast Suns were implemented by the AFL in the men's competition as as new clubs, they certainly would have had a 10 and 20 year plan for those clubs because that's how you expand Mm -hmm. your business. Um, The fact that there wasn't that foresight with the AFLW, you know, is worrying but I also don't want to be super negative because I love AFLW and, you know, the one bonus of this move in the seasons is that we get AFLW earlier now this season. So that's, there, that's yeah. the good thing, I guess. It is. I mean, there, like I said, I, I understand the thought process of trying to be uniquely separate from the men's competition to have a start and end date and then have the men's competition have their own start and end date. Uh, I, I understand that completely, but as you mentioned, the the foresight and the planning and uh, being able to pull this off doesn't seem to be have been thoroughly thought out. And we'll see how it how it goes going forward. I guess we're going to learn on the fly. Uh, nothing yes. new for the AFL, as I've learned <laughs> over the last few years. Yes. <laughs> So we are in the midst of the sign and trade period for the, uh, the women's competition uh, until I believe June 8th. And there was one, uh, go ahead. It's June 9th. It's June 9th here, but yeah. Okay. Okay. For you, it's June 8th. Yeah. <laughs> All right. There you go. So I was a half correct. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, one major trade that I know of that involved Collingwood uh, when they got um Sabrina Frederick uh, from Richmond and a couple picks going both ways. Uh, just take a moment to talk about that. And uh, what were you surprised that was the first announcement or did you have any indication that something like this was going to happen? Um, so it was Sabrina Frederick and a few picks and then Maddie Shevlin from Collingwood and a few picks went back to Richmond. So it was a player and two picks each way. 
um, we knew that Sabrina was heading to Collingwood um, and we, we knew that Maddie was heading to Richmond, really. Um, I think it's a really good trade for all parties. I think uh, Richmond need a player like Maddie Shevelin who's willing to be a role player, who's willing to do the things that are lacking at Richmond. So I think that's a real positive. And Maddie Shevlin is a hardworking player who it took her a long time to get her opportunity. And now that she's getting it, um, she's making sure that she's working hard enough that it doesn't go away again. So um, I'm really happy for Maddie. I think she's, she'll be our first 22 player, 21 player at Richmond. Um, Sabrina at Collingwood, I think this is, I know you're a Collingwood fan. Um, I think this is something you should be excited about. It is. She, she, um, she has been sacrificing her game for two years at Richmond, playing a role that Richmond have asked of her, um, which has caused a lot of people to suggest that she's not any good anymore or she's this or she's that because the, the benchmark that people expect of her is different to what Richmond wanted from her. So because she wasn't crashing packs and kicking four goals a game at Richmond, um, there was an assumption that she wasn't working hard enough, but that in fact isn't the case because Richmond did have other key marking forwards. They needed Sabrina to play a different role. And she did that. She did that well, I think. Um, At Collingwood, she's going to be able to be a lead up, marking forward, crashing packs, kicking goals and doing that to a midfield and, and, group of players who kick inside 50 so cleverly that it's going to maximize both of their games. So think about Ruby Schleicher's inside 50s this year, Brianna Davey, uh, Jamie Lambert, Britt Benici, all those players kicking inside 50 with Sabrina Frederick on a lead is going to be incredible. And as much as I hate to say it, it's going to make Collingwood far more powerful next year. So um, I think it's a fantastic result for everyone involved. Uh Richmond continues the uh, the trade market as they trade that 48 pick that they got from Collingwood uh, to St. Kilda to pick up uh, Poppy Kelly. Talk about her. Yeah, so this was a surprise. This was one that no one was really expecting to happen. Um, and it, it kind of indicates the strategy Richmond want to take into next season. So while they have Alice Edmonds on their list, who is a, a, a ruck, she would typically ruck a whole game on her own. Um, she's a clean tap rock. She didn't get a game at all this year where, and Richmond opted for Gabby Seymour, who is kind of a defender turned rock. Um, Gabby Seymour and Sabrina Frederick as their rocks for the game. Mm-hmm. I think to try and have a bit more impact at ground level in the midfield. Um, Poppy Kelly is, is kind of Sabrina Frederick a few years behind um, as reasonably fresh to footy. She's a basketballer but she's that forward ruck hybrid type player. So it suggests they want to continue to use that hybrid player rather than an all out ruck um, next season. Uh, I think it's a loss for the Saints because the Saints have relied on Ree Watt, who is I think 33 um, as their main ruck for a lot of the last two years. And I really think that they need to be looking for who can come through underneath her. Rucks do take longer to develop than other players. Um, and I think losing Poppy Kelly does step them back a little bit. So I'd love to see them looking for a younger ruck to get in um, to help cover that over the next couple of years. Gold Coast uh, came out and mentioned that they have those two uh, 
extra picks in six and eight and are looking to move them for possible getting someone of a veteran or a, a more established player. Who is uh, some of the targets? Do you know? I honestly have no idea who Gold Coast are targeting because it's um it's such a it's a really difficult thing given the fact that we've got a state-based draft in the AFLW. It's not any right. player that nominates can go anywhere. You're restricted to the players that are nominated in your region. So the fact that there are only two teams in Queensland means that picks one, six, and eight are far less valuable to Gold Coast than they are to a Victorian team mm. where there are six other teams competing for the same players. So those picks are obviously highly valuable to Victorian sides. So the issue then becomes which Victorian players are going to be willing to be traded to Queensland and live in Queensland half of the year. So that, that becomes right. that thing. Um, they managed to get Alison Drennan last year, who was a standout performer for them. She's fantastic. She's going to be fantastic again next year. They managed to get um, Sarah Perkins, who did get injured, but did have an impact when she was on the field. So, some players like that who um, maybe aren't the best players in the competition but work hard are going to be key. They've also signed a new coach. Um, Cameron Joyce uh, has been signed, and they've also added to their delistings in delisting Leah Kasler, who was their inaugural captain. So there's a fair bit of movement at the Gold Coast, but uh, it's not all doom and gloom for them either. Let's, um, we've got to really be careful about that. I know they had a winless season, but the young, they drafted seven players last year. The young players coming through um, and the draftees coming through for them last year are going to be a really damaging spine of a team for the long term. So Madison Levi in the forward line, um, Lucy Single in the middle, Daisy Darcy in defense. Those players are all going to, they're all going to be stars. So they've drafted well. They just need the time to develop them now. And... We had latest news I read was uh, Kim Remy is uh, looking to be uh, move on from Western Bulldogs to uh, made a request to go to North Melbourne. Talk about what she could bring to North if that does come to fruition. Yeah, so North seemed really, um, really intent on playing Emma King as a forward rather than a ruck, which is an interesting one given she's a really, really good ruck. Um, and Vivian Saad obviously hasn't quite done what they want. And now Kim Remy, Rennie could be that player. Um, it makes you wonder where they, they're going to use Vivian Saad, who did a lot of their rucking last year um, and less of it this year. So it, it's probably just a reshuffle. I doubt it means Viv Saad is you know, going to be on the outs because she is more of a utility than, a, than an all-and-out ruck. Um, but I think that's... North Melbourne want a tall team. They want a tall forward line, and this is how they're going to do it. If you want height, that makes sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> Chloe Shear is asked to be traded uh, to Geelong. Talk about that potential. Oh, I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of Chloe Shear, and I'm a big fan of the idea of her coming to Geelong because she's exactly the kind of player that Geelong was desperate for this year the transition player from mid like defense to mm -hmm. attack midfield to forward um too often Geelong this year got sucked up to the ball and then they had no options forward when they did want to go quick um this would allow them to keep a Cranston or a McWilliams in the forward line 
and Chloe Shear can be that conduit in there. Um, she's a very skillful player, very strong player, um, and has a really good footy IQ. So I love, love, love this idea for Geelong. And then uh, one last player to talk about, uh, probably one of the more famous players because of her athletic background. And, and Taylor Harris had a, a kind of a down season this past year, but uh, could not come to terms with, with Carlton. So uh, where is she going? I hear Melbourne is a uh, possibility. Yeah, it's looking more and more like Melbourne will be the place to go, which um, a lot of people are questioning uh, why Melbourne would want her given their forward line. But it actually, if you think about it, it does make sense why they'd want her. Um, first of all, you look at Melbourne's forward, tall forwards. Tegan Cunningham, she, similar to what I was saying about Sabrina Frederick earlier, she actually played a chop-out ruck role this year. She didn't really play very much forward time this year. And she's also 33, 34. Um, Shelly Scott, she's a more of a lead up forward, half forward kind of 50. She doesn't, she doesn't do a lot of that deep. Um, and she's also over 30. So she's closer to the end of her career than she is the start. We've just got to be realistic about that. Eden Zanka, they're playing on the ball now. So she's spending less time in the forward line as a, as a market, tall marking forward. So that's three players who in the next two or three years aren't going to be in that forward line. And then Alyssa Bannon, she's coming through. She will be a strong marking forward soon, but she's not there yet. She's got to build her body up and, and do all those things. So, you know, you add Taylor Harris to that and all of a sudden Alyssa Bannon coming into her peak and Taylor Harris, who is still only 22, 23. Yeah. People forget how young Harris is. That actually, there's a potential there that that could become a really fearsome kind of key forward duo combination um add to that that taylor harris can chop out in the ruck in the forward line if they need as tegan cunningham has been doing it does make sense for melbourne i think it would be a, a fantastic landing spot for her i was more i watched you know i i think x i don't know if this is fair or not but carlton seemed to me the last two years just been they peaked when they made the finals out of the conference scenario, but they were maybe picked too soon in a sense that they were not really that good of a, of a side yet to be there. Expectations got higher than what necessarily the talent level around the team was. And the star being Harris gets, you know, overpraised and, and over criticized when things don't go properly. Um, I, I don't know that they necessarily peaked in 2019. I think they definitely got to the grand final without being the second best team in the competition because of the conferences. I think last year their season went underrated. Um, they only lost one game last year and they were in very, very good form when the season got cut short. Um, but I think maybe it's personality based. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that, but you know, Carlton have other areas where they've got issues. Um, they can't simply focus on one key forward who mm-hmm. did have a down year. They need to focus on the whole team. And if she's preventing them from being able to do that, I do understand them being willing to part ways in order to focus on a team first situation. Whereas I think um, other clubs like Melbourne, they've got that team thing there. They're, they're ready for it. Um, and they can bring someone into the fold and 
build them up um, in a way that maybe was stagnant at a previous club. I don't know if I'm being very clear here. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be very diplomatic, but I think <laughs> Melbourne is a good, good culture for her to come into as well. No, I understand what you're saying. I, it was just from my vantage point, what I you know, saw this year was a team that just, if I said lack focus, would that be fair? It seems like at times that they were in, in any match that they were in, they had opportunities and then lost it. And when something kind of didn't go their way, they, they lost some focus and it cost them games. Yeah, I think they definitely had, um, I think their midfield structure um, defensively was a little bit disappointing this year, which allowed them to leak scores very easily because it put too much pressure on their defense. Mm -hmm. When they cleaned that up later in the season, that's when we saw them doing well and winning games. Their entries forward also in that first half of the season were very poor. They were very rarely putting it to their forwards advantage. So, they might have been getting it forward, but it wasn't really doing a whole lot. So there were a few areas of their game that they needed to clean up. And that all started with the defensive midfield um, attitude. Um, and being without Katie Wines now, um, as they've moved her on, they need to look at who else can do that. Because uh, Katie Loins has kind of always been the leader of that. I think that is Carlton's biggest issue going into next season. We are talking with Gemma Bastiani. You can follow her on Twitter at GL Bastiani and on Play On Radio Melb. And, of course, you can find her on her own podcast, uh, Australian Jams, where she talks about Australian-based uh, music uh, that comes out of the Australian, uh, I would say, uh, Melbourne area and throughout the, uh, the country. Is that fair enough way to, to describe it? Um. Yeah, just Australian music, really. I that's, that's been on hiatus. Uh, I'm looking to try and bring that back in the next month or so. So keep an eye out for a new episode coming. No, no question about it. Hey, let's talk about the, the men's competition. And as you kind of previewed earlier when we were talking uh, briefly, uh, the D's off to an amazing start, 10-1 and one on the season. Uh, other than you, your family's uh, got to be uh, sky high right now as uh, they – They've really looked strong and uh, maybe I thought maybe the surprise team of the first half. Um, I should correct you there. They're 11 and one now. After oh, last that, night. That's right. That's right. I didn't get um, a chance to watch that one. It was at five 30 <laughs> in the morning and I was getting up and going to work. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Um, they, the only game they've lost has been by one point as well. So they have been a strong team. I, I think that, the difference about Melbourne this year as compared to previous seasons where they've, they've looked good. So 2018 in particular mm -hmm. um, is the fact that in the past, Melbourne have been known to be unreliable, lose games. They should win um, fall away in games that where they've got control. And we often see kind of this attitude from them as a, as a playing group that as soon as they're challenged strongly, they kind of drop their heads. They, they revert to this kind of self-preservation footy. So it's, I have the ball, I'm about to be tackled, get rid of it. It doesn't matter if my teammate's in a good position or not, or if they're going to be crunched. I just don't need to have the ball right now. That's the kind of what we saw. They wouldn't shepherd for one another. They wouldn't, they wouldn't work for one another. They were very much working for themselves. That's what's different this year about them. The, the fact that they were challenged last night 
they were down by 20 points at halftime and came out in the second half and at one by 22 points, you know? So it's, that's the part of Melbourne that we haven't seen before. And that's what's making them a genuine premiership threat. And there's still going to be, be people um, mocking them online saying, just wait until finals, they'll lose their shit. They'll do this, do that. Sorry for swearing. Um, but they, that's not the Melbourne we're seeing this year. And that is why they're different. That is why they should be considered the premiership favourites right now. Western Bulldogs uh, right behind them with only two losses. And uh, they, they've been impressive so far. Those two uh, sides have uh, really dominated the first half of the season. The dogs are an interesting one. I think, um, yes, when they're on, they can score heavily and they can really punish you. But the other thing about them is that it's off the back of one or two small things. So like Melbourne did last week, if you can, if you can shut down or limit those one or two small things, i.e. tag Liberatore out of the game because he's the one winning their clearances. Um, you can beat them. They are beatable. Um, if you can, it, they, they want to move the ball very quickly into their forward line to try and catch defences unawares or catch them out um, where they can't support one another. So if you don't allow that quick ball movement or you apply that bit more pressure up the field and then have a smart defence that is well-organised, they can't do those things that they really want to do. The other thing that's really um, apparent with the dogs is that their defensive line is probably their weakest area of the ground. If you have a couple of big forwards and you're delivering the ball reasonably well to them, they're beatable. So I think the dogs probably have more holes in their side than they've shown so far. Um, but I think a few more teams will find them out over the next month or two. And then we got three teams kind of bunched together uh, record wise and, Brisbane, Geelong, and Port Adelaide, uh, all eight and three coming into this round. Talk about what, which one of those three are the strongest and maybe uh, which one is the one that you like uh, that um, we should be paying attention to more? Uh, and no matter, ignoring the fact that they lost last night, Brisbane are still, they are a very, very strong team. They're a very well-coached team. Um and they have, we saw in the first half, they have potential to really worry strong teams out of the way they want to play. Brisbane definitely are, of those three teams, the most challenging. Um, I think Geelong are not playing, I don't think they're playing a sustainable type of football against all sides. Um, they want to move the ball slowly. Um they rely very heavily on a couple of players to get the job done. It, you know, they're winning games, but it's not, it's not overly impressive. Um, and then Port Adelaide have probably been the most disappointing of that group. They, they came into the season, they should have been the team to beat. And they've just kind of fallen away. They, they're relying very heavily on um, creating scores out of stoppages. So as soon as their midfield isn't on top, um, they do kind of leak a lot of scores and, and I think that is a big concern. They, they don't win very well away from home either, which um, is a worry. So, yeah, I think Port probably a little bit disappointing at this point in the season. And now let's talk about your team, the uh, Sydney Swans, who got off to an amazing 4-0 start. They're now 7-4 and coming into tonight's game, about four hours away. Uh, talk about their season so far and uh, some of the things that you liked about it so far. 
yeah, I mean, the Swans are great, I should say. Uh, <laughs> they, they're, they're finally able to execute the game plan that they've been working towards for probably the past couple of years. And a lot of that is off the back of young players having confidence and skill um, and the right kind of players as well, being willing to pull the trigger to, to execute that game plan. So uh, I think Justin McInerney has been a key player to this. His ability to break away from congestion because he's got that speed, but also having a clean enough kick, a confident enough kick that he can get the ball into the corridor so that they can continue to move the ball fast. You know, the addition of Tom Hickey, who is a clean tap ruck, who is giving perfect service to the midfield. And there's a big difference in the midfield um, the midfield efficiency, whether he's in the side or not, and he's been crucial. So, you know, there's those little tweaks that have been made that have been coming for a couple of years that are finally working more often than they're not. Talk about Tom Hickey. Uh, obviously, the, the goals seen around the world this past week were – uh, went into the stands with the young uh, fan. She gets the ball and starts holding it and, and, uh, and kind of like, like, no, mom, it's mine. Or no, dad, it's mine. I'm going to keep this. You gave it to me. Uh, what, a, what a fun moment that was. And uh, I, I've seen that uh, put in memes and everything else. It's, it's, it's really a, uh, it was a cool moment. And he's really been playing well. I mean, he made a nice break down the middle and they, they fed him perfectly. And he was just, you know, it was just an easy goal, just power it through. I think it was actually an Isaac Heaney goal. I think um, Heaney kicked that goal that the girl. Oh, took. okay. But, um, Tom Hickey. Yeah. He's been remarkable. I think just, and this isn't to speak poorly about um, Callum Sinclair either. It's more Sydney's midfield structures up better and, and is more efficient with a clean tap ruck as compared to a bigger bodied ruck, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So we saw it last year when Sam Naismith was in. He's very similar to Tom Hickey in that respect. And we saw how cleanly the Swans are winning those clearances when Naismith was tapping the ball around. And that's something that Tom Hickey is providing. The other thing that he provides is he wins his own clearances. He's willing to lay pressure at ground level and he moves around the ground really well. So um, he covers a lot of ground. He works incredibly hard. Um, and he's got a really good connection with the with the young mids in particular. So you look at who's in Sydney's midfield. Obviously, Josh Kennedy and Luke Parker are often there. But it's Chad Rowbottom, uh, Chad Warner. It's James Rowbottom. Um, Justin McInerney sits on the wing. So he's around some um, stoppages around the ground. You know, Ollie Florent, Tom Papley runs through the midfield. He's got a really good connection with those guys. And all those guys want to run through very quickly. She needs to have that really good connection as compared to a contested um, big bodied midfielder that the Swans were known for throughout their strong, you know, 2005, 2006 era. They want to be running through. They want to be moving the ball quickly. They want to be breaking away and he's allowing them to do that. Now let's talk about my favorite player to watch in uh, my buddy Franklin. And let me say this the other week, um, was that a goal or not? Uh, did a finger touch it? I, from the angle that's shown on TV, I can never tell. Uh, it was, I mean, it looked like at that, that part of the game, he was just saying, like, jump on my back. I'm going to take us to the, to the promised land. And they came up just short. And it really came down to that, that call there where they said the finger got on the ball and it was a, a behind instead of a goal. The Freo game? Yes. Um, 
I don't know. You know, it, like they don't have the infrastructure to properly have a review system. Um, and that's what that comes down to really. Um, Cause they're not willing to spend the money on getting the infrastructure. Yeah. Um, but buddy, yeah, he's, um, he's flying and it's, it's the fact that he can tell in a game um, whether, again, he needs to take them on their back and, and do it himself, so kick the goals himself, or whether it's really important to the tempo of the game that he brings someone else in. And I think that's real leadership from him. Um, that's why so many young Swans have so much confidence in their game is because, you know, when Buddy Franklin is saying, no, it's your turn to have a shot instead of me, that's going to give you confidence over your career, right? No wonder Tom Papley is as, you know, I, I think people would probably call him cocky, but um, no wonder he's as confident as he is because he entered the competition with Buddy as his mentor. And that makes you mature so much quicker because you know that you've got that sort of support behind you. Of course, that's going to help you. So look at Logan McDonald, who's coming into play today. Um, of course, that's going to be really beneficial. So, I think Buddy's leadership above all is important, but he's also about 34 goals away from a thousand. So that's also very that. Yeah. That's, Buddy, that... Buddy, kick your own goals, please. <laughs> he's the, he's the last. So I was talking to a few others saying he's kind of like the last throwback type player who can, you know, kick seven, eight goals in a game if necessary, if the opportunity's there and uh, just watching him do what he does. It's just fun to watch because I never, of all the players that I've watched, his ability to dictate the game, in my opinion, is uniquely different and stronger than anybody else. I know he's a, a big physical person who can run, he can kick, you know, he can handball, he can, he can do, kind of do everything you need to do. But it seems like not just leadership, it's just like it's an intangible that you can't, you know, some players have it, some players don't. And he's, he's special because of what he can do and how he's done it throughout his career. Well, I mean, it also comes down to um, choosing the right, uh, like having the right choice in the moment. So decision-making, mm -hmm. but also having the skill to be able to execute that decision as well. So, you know, I, someone might say, we need to kick into the corridor now but they might not be able to hit that kick. So it's they just simply can't change the game in that way. But Franklin has that combination of skill and smarts. His ball-reading ability is very, very good. Um, and then he has the physical presence. But he can do all those things because he's got those attributes. And it doesn't, come, it doesn't necessarily come naturally either. He's had to work very, very hard to be as good as he is. And that's the thing that maybe goes unnoticed is that when he was injured last year and, and it was very unlikely he was going to play and he had a newborn child at home, he still went into the hubs to work with the players, work on his own game, see what he could do to help, be effectively a coach um, when he wasn't playing. Um, despite, you know, he would have had every right to stay home knowing he wouldn't play with his newborn child. But no, he went into the hub, tried to better the team. So I think it's his impact off the field is having a really wide ranging effect on the Swans as well, as much as it does when he's on the field kicking six goals. Yeah. He's like I said, 
bar none since I've been watching the game. I don't know, four or five years, however long it's been now on a, on a yearly basis, flat out my favorite player to watch. Cause you just, every time I believe anytime the ball's in his possession or around him, something special can happen. And as a sports yeah. fan, I love that. And there's not oh, many. Yeah. And that's, and just like you said, decision-making watching him make the decision and we could, you know, I don't want to overpraise him, but it seems like his decision making is top ninety percent. Like he doesn't fail at making the correct call on the move, which again, in any sport, is huge. But in this sport, because of the constant movement and and the up and down of the of the game, I mean, every decision you make affects the next play and how a player handles the ball and and where they're at what what decisions you know go to it and to me it's just like i said i i always said you know lance buddy franklin best player in the game we gotta watch him yeah absolutely and yeah that's the thing you know not everything is perfect and not everything is gonna go perfectly but he sets up his teammates um better than most key forwards do yeah. All right. The rest of the, the, the standings or the table is kind of bunched together. There's about, I, I say about six teams. It can go anyway. Is St. Kilda the most disappointing team so far this year after what they achieved last season? Um, <laughs> look, yes. <laughs> it's um, they, I, I think the reason they're disappointing isn't just the result, but it, it, that it feels effort-based. So they're a club that has a lot of players that should be tackling very hard, should be doing those one percenters right. And those are the things that are lacking from their game. Um, but then we've seen that they can turn that on and win a game by 80 points when they do decide to switch, flip mm-hmm. the switch. Why isn't that coming out every week? I think that is why it's disappointing more than anything else. Yeah, that they're just inconsistent. That's what I mean by being disappointing. It's just you don't know what what Saint teams is going to be on the uh, the oval on any given uh, weekend. And I've watched them a few times, and I'm like, oh my god, they're down sixty points. And then there are times, like you said, they they're actually on fire doing everything that they, they want to do. I, they're just I, I can't put a finger on it other than I, I remember last year how well they played towards the end and how they got on that run and, and made it into the top eight and was looking like a, one of the, the stronger sides coming into the, the finals last year and then kind of hit got a hiccup towards that time. But uh, they won the first round game, if I remember correctly, and they then had the, you know, I look at my five and six this year, I'm like just too inconsistent. No, no ream no real focus on what they're trying to achieve or not having a, a, uh, I don't know if it's each week's challenge. I'm not sure if I'm saying this properly. It's just who they're facing and not having the same focus or is it a lack of, of a, a singular focus, meaning this is what we are, this is what we do, and this is how we should do it. Um, I think their tackle numbers um, kind of yo-yo with their performance. Okay. Um, and I think, tackle effort is a big indicator of overall team effort. I think that is the thing. Like there was one game where they had laid something like 11 tackles to halftime. 
which and the opposition team had laid 11 tackles inside 50 to that point. So, like, that's the kind of thing I mean when I say the effort isn't consistently there. Um, they're not they're not getting that from every player every week. So you might be having a down week, but work yourself into a game in another way. And that is usually defensively. Those are the things their players aren't doing. One other uh, side to talk about real quick, uh, the defending flag champions, uh, Richmond, they are sitting at number eight right now. Um, you know, last year I thought they were on the, on the side, downside and they turned it on and they won the whole thing. Uh, is that, are we seeing a, a potential of the same type of thing where the first half of the season, they're just not playing up to the potential. And then we're going to see uh, the Tigers be the Tigers the second half of the season. Um, so this is quite, this is actually quite a similar conversation to the Melbourne one. So we talked about Melbourne and how in the past, um, they'd lose that momentum and drop their heads and they were unreliable and, and this and that. Whereas Richmond are the opposite. Everyone just has this faith in them that no matter how poorly they've started the season, they'll still come back. This is a different Richmond side. Um, I know they've had injuries. Every, every side has had injuries. So for some reason, their injuries get talked about a lot more than anyone else um, as an excuse for them having lost a game or playing poorly. Um, they, they can still be damaging, but we haven't seen it in a way that we have in the past in the first half of a season. So I know in the past they've been sitting, you know, fifth or sixth after the bye. They're kind of tracking along. They're still winning games, but they're not super impressive. But you still see things in games that suggest that they have that other level to go to. I don't know that we've seen it as much this year as we have in the past. And that is why I'm like, yeah, they're probably a bottom half of the eight side. I think there are better teams in the competition. I think there are better lists in the competition. We'll see what happens there. I mean, if I just, I've learned the hard way the last three of the last four years, every time I count them <laughs> down, they come back. <laughs> it wasn't fun last year. I didn't enjoy it at all. Uh, <laughs> actually uh, two things. Uh, off, off the cups to talk about here with you. Um, there was uh, a series on Amazon, on Amazon Prime this year uh, about footy and, and last year's experience with the pandemic. Uh, how, how was that received? Uh, I mean, I, so I watched it because obviously I knew about the game and that. I'm curious just to see what what uh, maybe the response is in Australia and just, you know, being available worldwide, exposing the game on that documentary on that, on that weekly uh, thing where they, they focus on those six teams, I believe, uh, and talked about their, their experience last season uh, going through the uh, pandemic and plan. Um, I'll be honest. I haven't watched it yet because it was released during AFLW season. So right. I just didn't have time um, and I haven't got to it yet. So I haven't seen it, but um I think it's uh, it's made people universally love Eddie Betts even more than they yeah. already did. Um, so that's one part. Um, I think another part is that, not to be super negative, but it's made people not like Richmond as much. Um, <laughs> that's seeing, probably true. I, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, seeing the behind-the-scenes things that Richmond were doing and some of the things that were said, and, and I'm sure a lot of it was cut out as well. 
Um, I, just from the people that I've spoken to who have watched it, um, those are the overarching um, themes that have come out of it, really. That's interesting. Yeah, Eddie Betts is another player I enjoy watching. I know um, he's criticized just because of his his I guess his age and still playing. And some people say he does not necessarily have the same skill level he had a few years back. But uh, he's another player that every time he's on the field, anything can happen. And his energy level is really unparalleled. I mean, I've never seen. I mean, I don't watch the game as long as you have and many others, but. Anytime Carlton's on, you know, I, I, I check it out just to see, you know, how he's doing. I mean, did you see his goal against Sydney last week? Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> anyone who says he doesn't have the skill level has lost their mind. Like, who, who kicks that? I don't know. It's fun. Uh, you know, I love when people have uh, doubts about someone and they prove them wrong consistently in and out. And uh, here, you know, obviously I got to see his uh, his documentary that was – released a couple of years back too. And it was a, a phenomenal story and uh, he's an engaging person. And I mean, the sport has a lot of engaging players, not just Buddy Franklin and, and Eddie Betts and, and others, but I think, and, and this might be my biasness meeting, uh, you know, here in uh, Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, is there any type of push to try to get players and their personalities and who they are, out there for someone can discover this game that is so I, I'm going to say it weirdly maybe uh, Australian only and it should be something that we see more universal uh, in my opinion you know, throughout the states or in Europe um, that I mean there's a big push and pull when it comes to players personalities being you know exposed public um, on show I guess yeah. Um because the, the football media here constantly are asking for more personalities, more personalities. But then as soon as a player shows any part of their personality, the media admonishes them for it. So it's just like they can't win either way. So it's, it's just kind of in that stalemate because as soon as they do anything. So a, a really good example of it is, I think it was last year during Indigenous round maybe, um, where Sydney Stack was playing on Eddie Betts, both Indigenous players. Um, and Eddie Betts kicked a, an absurd goal from the pocket and turned around to Sydney Stack, his direct opponent, and kind of they had a chuckle together because mm-hmm. clearly Sydney Stack said something to him earlier in the game. And they right. had a chuckle, they hugged one another. And it was a beautiful moment because Sydney Stack has spoken in the past about Eddie Betts being an idol of his and he's getting to play on him and all this sort of stuff. And then he kicks his crazy goal against him. And they have this moment on the field and it's, it's amazing. But then the media had a problem with it. And it's just like, you can't win. No matter what they do, you can't win because the media yeah. are just going to shut you down, even yeah. if it's a great yeah. thing. Um, so I think that is very much the, the sticking point in a lot of ways. I can understand that. Let's, let's talk about you and uh, everything that you've been uh, doing over the last year. Obviously, Siren Sports has been a big part of uh, your, your life as uh, you're one of the co-founders in that. You uh, obviously um, big involvement in there and uh, write a blog each week on the, the AFLW season and just footy in general. Just talk about your involvement with Siren Sports and where it's, wh- what direction it's headed as it continues to grow. Um, yeah, so I'm a co-founder um, of Siren. Uh, we 
yeah, uh, send out a weekly newsletter about women's sport, women in sport. Um, it's not just footy, but obviously that is my focus. Um, currently, we're running uh, an emerging sports writer program with three participants, um, all women who want to get into sports writing. And it, it's sponsored by or it's partnered with Football Victoria, so round ball football soccer. Um, and they it, it's, it's designed to get them ready and learn to you know, pitch articles and, and do all this sort of stuff. So um, actually mentoring and helping younger women who are wanting to enter this space but don't know how um, is really fulfilling, I think, because, uh, I mean, there was nothing like that that I ever did. Um, I just kind of started writing on my own blog and then found these people and started doing it. So I've had no, like, formal training when it comes to journalism or sports mm. writing or anything like that. I've just kind of flown by the seat of my pants Whereas a couple of the other um, co-founders are very much, you know, they've done the academics, they, they pitch, they've, that's been their whole thing. So I've learned so much by doing this program, but I'm also able to provide a, a different perspective on a lot of things too. And, and this is the whole thing about women's sport is that the lack of coverage is um, a big problem but also it's allowing us to do things a bit differently because there's not a set way that things have to be done because it's not really being done. So it's allowing us to kind of mold these um, sports writers into what they want to be um, while still writing professionally and doing all these things. So we're getting more perspectives um, from different people who have had different experiences. And that's something that I don't think we see a lot in mainstream media. So it's incredibly exciting and it also gives me an outlet to write a lot about footy. So I've got another long form piece coming in the next week or two. So um, keep an eye out for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, uh, obviously you, we talked before we got started about making a call and uh, those who uh, had an opportunity to listen to my conversation with uh, Julia Montesano uh, earlier uh, this year, she talked about that you were involved in, in that, in the first program, just talk about that program and uh, how it how it set up for you, and what 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 can you take out of it, and what what can we look for in the future from it? Um, yeah, Julie and I actually did two separate commentary programs in the past um, six months uh, or so together, which is really fun that we both got to do them together. So the first one was making the call, um, and that was the pilot program, and, and making the call is run by Lucy and Emma Race, who um, people might know from the Outer Sanctum. Um, there are amazing, amazing people who uh, are trying to change the landscape for everyone coming after them, um, which I think is just an incredibly generous thing to do because they're not going to reap the rewards of me getting to do commentary or something like that. You know, like they're not the ones that are getting on, that, that are getting those opportunities that they are creating. And I think that that is, it's such a generous thing to do. And I'm so, so grateful to them because realistically I, I've quit my job in October of 2019 right before the pandemic started so it was great timing um, I went freelance trying to do sports uh, media stuff um, with the goal of doing special comments for AFLW that's kind of my dream job um, and I worked on Siren throughout the pandemic and yes it made it took a lot of steps and it was great but until I did making the call in November I didn't realize just how much potential I had and how many people were out there to actually help me. And doing that program, 
was crucial to it and learning those things. But then the opportunities that that set me up with um, has then allowed me to kind of go into full gear this year and, and open up a lot of opportunities during the AFLW season this year for me. Um, I worked closely with a number of commentators, um, providing research and stats to them um, in preparation of games. And um, there's a, a few opportunities on the horizon for me next season that um, are going to kind of take that up a notch again for me. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to Lucy and Emma and making the call for just uh, making me realize that I could do those things and also putting me in touch with the right people. Cause if you don't know these people, you don't know who you should be speaking to. Um, and that absolutely has been really important as well. And, and getting to know um, Julia as well through that has been amazing too. Yeah. Uh, so have you been in the booth with her doing a game or anything like that yet? Or um, cause I can see you being an analyst uh, someone to talk about the strategy of the game or or to make a point about what a player may have uh, just did. Uh, I think you would be fantastic at that. Yeah, that's my goal job. That's what I want to do. Um, that is what I'm working toward. Obviously, that can't be the only thing because, you know, you've got to be able to do multiple things. But yes. um, my dream is to do special comments for AFLW and um, – it's looking more and more likely that might be a possibility. I always thought in the past that given the fact that I'm not an ex-player, um, that it would be a fairly challenging thing. Um, but it's looking more and more likely that I, that opportunity will open up for me because of hard work and also because I've got people like Lucy and Emma backing me up, um, telling the right people that I'm the right person for that job. And yeah, again, I couldn't be more grateful. But we haven't, Julie and I haven't had a chance to add a game um, commentate together but we have been I, sh I don't know if I should say this we've been doing practice sessions in preparation so that's fantastic um, once a week yeah once a week we've been doing practices I obviously that's stopped right now because of lockdown but we'll get back into it once the lockdown is over um, and yeah we've been practicing together so we've got a bit of a good rhythm going now yeah that's 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 fantastic no let me tell you from my own personal experience uh, if you can get a timing and a, a, a comfort level with someone to broadcast with, it, it, it just changes everything because you almost know exactly what they're going to say, when they're going to say it, and how much time they need to do it. And yep. it changes everything. Let me tell you, I've worked with many people. <laughs> I probably had more partners in broadcasting than I can actually remember and count. And those who are, the, you get a... Uh, a connection with it just makes the broadcast so much easier so much fun and it's just like a conversation like two got two friends talking about the game and what's going on and you just let them go i have a uh, a basketball partner james dotson who uh also comes on a podcast to talk about indy car racing because he goes out to indianapolis every year other than last year for the pandemic uh and Truly, he, he and I have worked together now four years, and it's been just uh, one of the, the best scenarios I've ever had. And I've been doing this for 25 years or longer. And it's just purely because he's like you, and I say this as a compliment. He understands the games thoroughly. 
He's very good at stats and uh, and being able to keep up with them and relay that information in a broadcast. And be quite honest with you, if I ever caught a cold similar with you, I can literally shut up and he could take over and I have no worries. He's that, you know, and uh, I've said this many times, James is uh, one of the uh, one of the best people I've ever uh, worked with. And again, I practice, enjoy it, have fun. Have, you know, don't be afraid of each other and just enjoy the, the, the opportunity when it comes about, because uh, it will come about. I, I have, I've listened to both of you over the years. You know, I, I met Julia this year <laughs> through you and your podcast and I had a chance to talk to her and I watched her on YouTube and just from my own experiences and I'm no one, well, I'm no Vince Scully, I'm no anybody of, of, of nature uh, in this world, but I'll say this, I know talent when I see it and hear it. She has talent. She has opportunity. I hope the same thing happens for you and, uh, and others who are in the, uh, the make the call and uh, programs because in, in Siren Sports, what you're doing, because it is really, truly uh, a good thing. And I understand how, uh, I, I forgive me, the two that, that started it. Uh, Lucy and Emma Rice. I understand their thought process on this level. At my stage of my life, I've done it. I'm not going to, if I hand it off to someone, I want to hand it off to someone who can make it even better than I did or do more than I did. And, and whoever that person may be, I want them to, you know, to enjoy it as much as I've had. And that's what really matters. And I think that's their, their pr- primary focus is look at what we had the opportunity to do. Let's make the next generation even better. And, and let's just keep passing this down through the generations. And you'll see every four years, every eight years, every 10 years, some amazing talent roll through. And that's how it happens. And uh, if you're the first group to come through, that makes it even more exciting because uh, it's an opportunity. And I really, truly wish you the best on that. And uh, I, I can't tell you how happy I am every time we get a chance to talk because I, I learned so much more. You correct me when I'm wrong. I love that because I'm wrong more than I'm right on just about everything in life. But um, it has been really a pleasure. Uh, I know you taking time out and you're under the weather here today and, and during <laughs> lockdown, I, I really truly appreciate you taking the time dealing with this idiot from Ohio uh, talking footy with you. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate um, being able to talk about AFLW so much because there aren't, there aren't many opportunities to do that. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's, it's a great game. I, I, like I said, when I got back into footy about four or five years ago, it has just been a, a great win world of, of people I've met either here in the States or uh, like yourself and Julia and a few others. And uh, thank you. I can't thank you enough for being that ambassador and uh, being that, uh, that friend that uh, we only talk on zoom, maybe two or three times a year. <laughs> no worries. And uh, I hope the Swans get a really big win today for me. You know what? Uh, real quick here. Uh, absolutely. I want to see the Swans do well for you because my, my pies suck. Um, they're not good. <laughs> they're not going to be good. <laughs> oh, <No>. You know <laughs> what? I, why I have you and you know me, I get on tangents and I can't help myself. Uh, with the Eddie McGuire gone away, have they filled that position? Have they oh, made any God. decisions? Or is it absolutely just chaotic information coming out? Because I've never heard and I'm, I'm curious because 
I look at this as a great opportunity for them to do something special and unique and different, and I'm not sure they're going to do it, but we'll see. Um, <laughs> this is a minefield to talk about. Uh, I'm sorry to throw you, throw no, you on no, the no, bus no. like that. <laughs> They've had their, their attempt to bring in some fresh voices, some new perspectives, um, and some really important people into that board um, has been met with a lot of negativity from their members um, to the point where one of the new board members had to turn their Twitter on private because they were being attacked so much. Um, it's, it's such a weird, negative, um, kind of stuck-in-the-mud club culture that I've just never seen before. I've never seen such a negative response to a board appointment ever mm-hmm. in my life. And it's, it's this glut of old school Collingwood fans who were happy with the way the club culture was and what Eddie Maguire was doing. And a lot of us um, who may be younger or a little bit more aware of what's happening in the world or a little bit more compassionate um, are very aware of how desperately that culture needs to change. The problem is that they have too many fans who were content with how it was and they're still having too much of a say. And I think that is where everything is happening. All, all the headbutting is happening now. Yeah. Like I said, it's a great opportunity. We'll see if they rise to the challenge. Uh, I, I think yes. it's, you know, you, you, can, you can do something really special if they wanted to. I'll just leave it at that and everyone can figure out what I'm talking about. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Sorry to throw you in the bus at the end. Like I always do. Um, Cause you know me, once I get off my notes, anything's possible. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, If possible, maybe towards uh, the finals, we'll have you back. And uh, as I told Julia and I have told others, Anytime you have something you want to promote, anything I can do to help, just let me know. Uh, Radio MVP is uh, happy to have you on anytime, even if it's just for five minutes. Thanks for having me, Tim. I appreciate it. All right. That's Gemma Bastiani from Melbourne, Australia, as uh, you can follow her on Twitter at GL Bastiani and on uh, Twitter at Play Play on Radio Melb and at Australian Jams. And you can find her on the internet at GemmaBastionic.com and AustralianJams.com. Gemma, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. See you later, mate. Once again, one more thanks go out to uh, Gemma Bastiani for appearing on the podcast and talking AFLW and AFL men's competition with, with me here today. And, of course, to my basketball partner, and our Indy 500 expert, James Dotson, for uh, recapping uh, Memorial Day weekend and the Indy 500. It was uh, always great to have James on. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Like I said, two of my favorite people that we have on this podcast uh, on one. So uh, this one was kind of special. So for Anthony, who will be returning next week with me, uh, Tim Conten is wishing you all a wonderful good day. We'll talk to you soon right here on Radio MVP.